Hello, my name is Steve Bloomfield and this is How to Fix, the weekly podcast from Prospect where we try to fix some of the country's and the world's most pressing problems. This week, sexual harassment. In the three weeks since the first allegations of sexual harassment and assault were made against the Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein, the floodgates have opened. From film to journalism, politics to law, women have come forward with horrific stories of assault and everyday harassment. No industry is immune. It feels as if something might have changed, as if we've reached or are reaching towards a tipping point. But are we? And what, if anything, will actually change? What can we do, both men and women, to make sure that things change? And what do we mean by that? What does change actually look like? My perception is that actually the the laws are okay. It's that companies don't live up to them so that when you report, things aren't taken seriously. We're joined by two journalists who've written about these issues extensively. Rosamund Irwin, a columnist for the Evening Standard, and from Berlin, the writer and poet Musa Akwonga. And of course, as always, by prospect Stephanie Boland. Uh, Steph, first of all, let's recap the last three weeks. Quite a lot has happened in quite a short space of time. I think it's been surprising for everyone how much the story has stuck. I mean, we've had similar stories over the past few years about allegations of assault, harassment, um, general abuse by various powerful men. I don't think anyone anticipated that three weeks later we'd still be leading the front pages with this. What do you think's different about this time? Because as you say, there have been stories for years and years that have sprung up, that have emerged. There's been great piece of investigative reporting, but then nothing has happened or it's been something's happened to that particular person or in that particular situation. I think it's got to be the sheer numbers. We've had people who have faced a lot of allegations before Bill Cosby, we heard a lot over the years about allegations against Woody Allen, but this seems to be the first time that something is broken and hundreds of women from across different industries have spoken up to say this is happening to them too. It's become too loud to ignore suddenly. Let's talk about what's happening here in Westminster, um, just five minutes walk away from, from where we record this. There have, over the last three or four days in particular, been a number of stories about uh, sexual harassment and indeed assaults within the Palace of Westminster. Uh, what's the political fallout been? I think a lot of women MPs have suddenly got very sick of keeping quiet about this stuff. If you speak to both MPs and political journalists and other people who hang around Westminster, researchers, spads, they'll all tell you that rumours have swirled about certain people for years and years. Again, we seem to be at this tipping point where now there's real cross-party support and cross-party efforts to bring it out into the open and tackle it. One of the challenges around Westminster, which is true of other industries, though, is that there's not really a proper accountability process. You have the party whips who people would go to, and we've had cases that have been quite high profile before, like when the journalist Isabel Hardman did complain about sexist comments to the Conservative whips. But they have a stake in keeping things quiet because the party reputation is on the line. What MPs are now saying, and I know Jess Phillips has been very vocal about this, is that you need a third party reporting system because essentially Westminster doesn't have HR. Rosso, and there's one thing that seems to link a lot of the industries where we're hearing stories, and that's this sort of informality of both the ways into that industry and the ways up. In what ways does that change the culture of uh, whether sexual harassment is, is allowed to take place? Well, part of the fact that it's informal means that the settings of a lot of these, um, well, these cases of harassment 
are outside the workplace. So if you take journalism and politics, for example, a lot of these conversations are being had in bars, whether that's actually at Westminster or around Westminster or, or more widely. And of course, that does shift a dynamic. And it also makes it harder actually to complain about it and come forward. One of the uh, things that I think is really going to come out is that we're talking very often about people in very junior roles who are the victims of this. And what that means is not only do they not necessarily know the process by which to complain, but also they're vulnerable in the sense that their work may be very insecure. So they may be on either very short-term contracts, particularly in journalism. Obviously, you could be talking about people who are freelance. And it's a completely normal practice in journalism to ask a senior journalist to go for a coffee, to go, and you know, that might be a drink instead. And then of course, plenty of men do that every day with men, and they there's a sort of system of patronage whereby uh, more senior male journalists help more junior male journalists. And you can see how a woman looking at that might think, oh, yes, well, that's the same route that I will obviously take. That's how I make these contacts. But, of course, sometimes, and we're not talking, obviously, this is not in all cases, but sometimes when a woman makes that approach, there's another expectation there, something she would never have thought she would be expected of her and some people might say she's naive to go into that circumstance but she's not because that's the normal process of our industry and I think that's something that we don't know how to tackle yet. Then that poses an interesting challenge because if we're talking about the vulnerability of of their job uh, if we're talking about a lack of HR in some industries there's a way to fix that but in an industry like for example film television theatre or journalism finding a solution to that problem seems a lot harder. Right. And the first thing, obviously, is that you want the, you want people in the situation to have easy access to information as to what to do. I think what one of the things that's really changed now, obviously, is that social media has allowed people to join this call of Yes, Me Too. So it becomes much more uh, technology has enabled women to come forward and acknowledge there are other women going through exactly the same thing. I know when I've had these experiences, I felt incredibly lonely and had nowhere to go to. So I think we've got to use technology so that women know, largely women, sometimes men, know where they can go to and say where they can get advice. And that's the really important thing. And also what, quite simply, what their rights are in this situation and that these things shouldn't just be brushed under the carpet. So I think you need a system where you can raise these issues. I think uh, Steph's absolutely right. I think we're going to hear many more calls for uh, the third party reporting system, which I would say Parliament particularly desperately needs. Um, And I think that is what will change things. Musa Kwonga, there's also an issue of what men should be doing uh, when faced with these questions. And it's not as simple for, uh, it's not as simple as men simply saying, oh, well, you know, I'm not like that, so it doesn't affect me. What are the key things that you think men have to reconsider about the way that they act, the way that they operate? Uh, I think because men still hold an overwhelming number of senior positions in a lot of these industries, it really does fall to them in a very concrete sense to actually set up some of the structures for reporting. You know, the third party reporting is a fantastic system. It's great. Um, and I think we need more of this in the, you know, not just in politics, you need in the arts as well, because in the arts, you've got a lot of people working freelance. You've got a lot of artists, you know, striking out about themselves who might experience harassment from, let's say, a third director, from a um, uh, someone who wants to cast them for a part, from someone making a grant, so that the need, and maybe from someone who's like you know quite senior in a let's say a an administrative post. So you need a kind of parallel body, like an ombudsman, 
that people can readily go to. And when I say men need to do these concrete things, I mean, it's also not good enough for men to I'm not like that. It's also not good enough just to sort of say, well, I'll raise this with other dudes. No, it's actually like the point is past that. You know, a lot of men and myself included are in positions where actually we can and I I would like to hasten to say that I'm trying at the moment to work on a couple of things in this respect to set up reporting structures, but also better infrastructure for legal representation, for example, because a huge problem is women being unable to get access to legal services to fight their cases, um, which is a huge, huge problem. And the amount of women who you know, are marginalised economically who can't bring these cases simply because of a lack of financial resources is staggering. So that's a big part of it too, I think. Musa, I just want to ask you about the the social side of of what men should do, the cultural side of what men should do. You've written very well in the past about uh, how you have responded when you have heard stories about people you considered your friends sexually harassing, even assaulting women. In what way have you rethought your own positions on this or your own actions uh, on these issues in the in the past few weeks? Uh, to be honest with you, I haven't really been tweeting for the last few days because I've been trying to sort of take stock of all of this. And it's been very, um, I don't want to sound naive because, of course, we knew this was a problem. Uh, I think it's been overwhelming because friends of mine who've come forward with their own stories have subsequently been approached by dozens of women who kind of thought, well, she's speaking out. I can come talk to her. And some of the names coming out are people that I, I know about. I, I know people who've been involved in serious, who've perpetrated serious assault. Um, so one thing that I'm doing at the moment is trying to provide a bit of a sounding board for this and provide a strategy behind, you know, in terms of how to engage with these cases, but also in relation to other men, you know, raising these topics among men. So circulating articles about sexual harassment and abuse among male friends, having the conversations, initiating these conversations, and also understanding, this is the thing, Stephen, it's like a small thing, but understanding that as a man, unfortunately, we are a lot of the time like suspects. And that's something I've noticed in my circle of friends as well. Like they go, actually, we vet all the guys we work with. We vet all the men we work around. And because it's just something you have to do as a precaution, it's nothing personal. It's because, you know, you could be capable of that. Um, and it's, it's kind of in a bit of a sort of cheesy Buddhist way. It's acknowledging that you at any point can represent a threat to people in certain spaces. So how do you conduct yourself, not just on, not just on dates, in conversations about, misogyny or in conversations about work do you step back from a conversation with the kind of guy like myself tends to go on and talk quite a bit so it's really just modulating all your behavior in each of these scenarios so you can be more accommodating to what women are actually trying to say and tell you i wonder if it's worth off the back of that talking a bit more about some of the way the press have picked up on these things because there seems to be both a willingness to report on these stories and specifically to hear people's quite confessional stories which we might wonder about where that impulse is coming from but there's also been this slightly worrying backlash of going well we don't want to have a witch hunt and we don't want to have people accused unfairly and actually I don't think that concern is as ungrounded as instinctively I feel it's ridiculous but there is something about the fact this has all been done so informally and and has had to have kept quiet for so long and we're now going to have to really rethink how we have these conversations. Yeah, I think the attitude of newspapers does need to clearly to be examined here. I mean, there's a really awful element of newspapers where unfortunately, and I wish this weren't the case, but these are seen as sexy stories, which sounds so ludicrous because these are stories about assault, 
uh, about horrible, horrific things that have happened to women, but they are treated as though, look, here's a very attractive woman and this is something terrible that's happened to her. But look, we get this wonderful picture on the front page of a very nice looking actress or whatever it is. And I think that's really problematic. But at the same time, we and, and we need these voices to be heard. The flip side, I think I've been very disappointed in a lot of the newspapers and the approach they've taken on the comment pages because it has been very much, oh, you can't. We had one uh, columnist saying you couldn't even put a kiss at the end of an email. Well, that is a ludicrous thing to take from this. (laughs) And I would also add that a lot of those journalists could have done an awful lot more homework on the pieces that they're writing and make a few phone calls. You know, their assumptions that people had lost their jobs, uh, you know, not not just jobs necessary, freelance contracts, whatever it was, due to a single uh, allegation was, you know, if if they'd made a phone call, they would know that wasn't true. Um, And that I find really disappointing because I think if you're going to write about these things, you have to take them seriously. There is somebody's um, experience here that may be awful or maybe a lot of women or men's experiences. And that needs to be treated as such rather than sort of light copy. Let's pick up on that one of those pieces you just mentioned there, and let, let's say what it was. It was this the Giles Corrin piece in the Times, where he essentially his response to the Weinstein allegations was, "Oh no, I won't be able to flirt again." Steph, is that a, an example of this sort of the lack of thinking that we're finding among quite a lot of men in senior positions that they're thinking about? Oh, hang on, does this then affect how I act, and why should that be the case? Because I've done nothing wrong. I think it does. I mean, you say it's the Giles Corrin piece in The Times. It should be noted that we had a very similar piece also about kisses at the end of emails in The Spectator. I mean, if you weren't paying attention, you could imagine this whole thing was actually about email kisses, which it very much was not. I think there's a a lack of empathy behind that. And I do understand that there will be a lot of men doing some very, very difficult soul searching over the past few weeks, including men who perhaps haven't done things that are awful, but have something they remember from their time at university or when they were quite young, where they're now wondering if that was different to how they perceived it. I don't think we should go, men are not having any difficulty from this. On the other hand, if the column you write the week that assault allegations come out in your industry is about whether or not you can still be a bright young flirty cheeky chap I really question the tone of that especially in such a prominent paper as the Times. And another thing to think about here is that I think younger women have had a very different reaction to this than older than some older women I mean there's plenty of older women who are very supportive but there is a thing of well I had to put up with that you know it's just normal I mean somebody actually and it was a quote from a friend but she described sort of um, getting rid of men's attention as you know a fun game and I thought there's nothing fun about about this stuff this is actually sometimes incredibly unpleasant and of course it's up to the, the individual how they react to it but I think it's quite dismissive of younger women who actually have said look we don't want you know we don't think this is an acceptable thing to be happening we want this to stop and we want to draw a line for the next generation of women so it doesn't happen to them which is only a positive thing. It's also very dismissive of older women who will have fought this for years and many of whom will have suffered repercussions and quite possibly are no longer prominent commentators because they did so. Right, exactly. Musa, is there, do you think, a generational change that for both women and men, say, under the age of of 40, as I believe all of us uh, in this conversation are, that we view things on the whole, and again, it's difficult to generalise, slightly differently from those who are 20 or 30 years older? I really hope so. I really am wary of being too triumphalist about the young generation being the future. 
At the same time, I think we are seeing some really hopeful steps forward. We've seen just recently Eniola Aluko going up against the Football Association and winning a case about racial discrimination, which, you know, as a woman, she was clearly out on a limb in terms of doing that. And she received very little institutional support in doing that. So and there was so much support for her in a way you wouldn't have seen maybe 20 years ago. So I think there are some real changes at societal level. But there is still obviously such a long way to go, given what the other people on this podcast have also said. Steph, we talked about societal changes. We've talked about having HR and less informality in the workplace. We should also talk about the law, because I guess there are two issues here. One is, are the laws we have in place the right laws? But the other, I guess arguably more important issue is implementation there's no point having the right law if no one's actually going to implement it properly right and we know that nationally the way that um, sexual assault and particularly rape cases are handled leaves a lot to be desired just informally speaking to women my age and and older women there's a lot of people I know who would not bring a case like this to the police because they would fear the reaction from the police even before the case went out to their wider circle of friends, to their colleagues, um, to the person that they've accused. So there does need to be a shift in how the law is implemented. I'm, I'm no lawyer, so I couldn't tell you whether our existing laws are fit for purpose or whether they need to be reformed as well. I don't know, Ross, if you've got any thoughts on that. I just, my perception is that actually the, the laws are okay. It's that companies don't, or organisations don't live up to them so that when you report things aren't taken seriously so it's it's there that I see the biggest issue rather than actually with our laws. I wonder if there's also a conflation between the legal standard that needs to be met and the standard within the workplace because if you think of a bullying case where sexual harassment is not involved the standard you need to prove for somebody to be seen to be bringing disrepute into the company and lose their jobs is very different to the standard you need to bring for a legal case with jail time so I'm very wary of conflating those two things. Uh, Musa just finally from you um, you're in Berlin how has this yeah. story played out there? Has it been different from how we've seen it in the UK and in the US? It's received huge coverage. We've had um, our own version of the Me Too hashtag over here, which actually was picking up on a hashtag of a similar nature that had come out in Germany about four years ago, so about a year before I arrived here myself. And it's been really taken up by a lot of the feminist websites. There's a brilliant magazine called Edition F is worth checking out. And again, it's one of those things which generated a lot of heat and you hope maybe a bit more light unfortunately time will still tell in terms of policy what this would actually change but there's been so much more awareness just in the last week because of this so yeah i'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about it um ros finally what do you think is going to happen next we you know we said optimistic at the start we might be at a turning point or a tipping point or close to one what's your gut well i think that the Westminster allegations are going to are going to grow, and we're we're facing something on the scale actually of expenses. However, there is also a, a tiny bit of me that says that relies on a few things sort of falling into place, more people coming forward. I do think there's also a chance that part of the problem that this is facing is that consensual relationships that are affairs or whatever, but are completely consensual between two people of similar ages, are sort of being coupled together, and they shouldn't be 
with non-consensual behavior that really isn't acceptable. And I think the danger when actually I think the Commons does need particularly uh, to look at its uh, patterns and then the behavior of people there, I think the danger is that those two things get conflated and it's not helpful. And I, I also wonder if we are going to see women's uh, female MPs starting to call for a proper historic inquiry. We've got them into lots of other organizations, but into the behavior particularly of, of past MPs as well. Uh, something may, of course, be dead now, but uh, but the behaviour that's been going on for years and years and years, and I think that may start to happen this week. But do you think, looking more generally, aside from the specifics of Westminster allegations, that we are going to be able to, in a few years' time, look back at this moment and say there was a, a societal shift at that moment? I'm optimistic on that, but I think it's one of those things where people actually have to take up a cause. You can't assume, oh, we've shone the spotlight on this, it's solved, let's move on, because then the dirt starts gathering up again. I think we've really got to make sure this is a moment that people take and seize and do something with. We'll leave it there. Rosamond Irwin and Musa Kwonga, thank you both very much indeed. Uh, So, Steph... This is called How to Fix, but really we're talking about how to end sexual harassment. Are we any clearer? I think we're a lot clearer than we were three weeks ago, and we're going to become clearer in subsequent weeks, I hope. As both Musa and Roz said, if we can seize this moment and use it to push for both structural and cultural reform, then there is a way to make this a lot better. There is still this issue, though, that, as we were saying before, most senior positions in most organisations are held by men. They still have the power. That's not going to change overnight. That's not going to change in a generation either, necessarily. Is it possible to have proper change without that changing? Give us time. <laughs> OK. Uh, we'll leave it there. That's it for How to Fix. My thanks to Rosamond Irwin, Musa Kwonga and, of course, Steph Boland. How to Fix was recorded and edited by Matt Hill at Rethink Audio here in the heart of Westminster, for further reading, go to prospectmagazine.co.uk slash howtofix. Uh, if you liked what you heard, do us a favour and rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Join us next week as we try to fix refugee camps. I'm Steve Bloomfield. That was How to Fix. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.